Dear listeners, this episode with the fantastic Thomas is full of wonderful gems, but we had some minor audio issues where it appears as if we jump in mid-conversation. Fear not, there was not a lot that you missed. We do apologize for it both to Thomas and to you. Thomas was a great guest and you will thoroughly enjoy this episode and we will have him back on the show in the future to make it up both to him and to you. And now to this week's episode. Enjoy. Human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ember Sadat. Join me and my co-host, Ace Deliri, as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. So welcome to Risky Conversations. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, thank you for having me. Um... My name is uh, Virgil Den, uh, or at least that's my, my pen name. Some of you may know me by um, my real-world name, Thomas Messina. I am a compliance officer at a large financial institution, and on a quarterly basis, I not only attend the Real World Institute, but I also instruct uh, a session on compliance and fraud. $50,000, where, uh, you know, they were doing exactly what you're saying. Um, and it's, 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 it doesn't take long to weed out these types of, these types of compliance costs. You typically see it at the, the smaller broker dealers, uh, money service businesses and things like that. Um, at the larger institutions, um, not so much. Okay. Uh, but there is a, there is a gray area. I mean, it's not always black and white. Um, you know, take for example, you you might have um, a politically exposed person, say maybe a former you know you know member of parliament mm. who had some negative news. Um, you know that you 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 find out about them, and the question is, okay, you know, should you onboard this particular individual? Uh, sometimes the negative news is simply a blog posting. Sometimes um, it's in the mainstream press. Sometimes it's just allegations. Um, and so there are some gray areas. Um, and as a compliance officer, you often, you know, you put your reputation on the line. Um, you know, every email I send, um, any conversation that I have with um, bankers or senior management uh, where it's minuted, you know that um, – you know, a regulator through discovery or, um, you know, law enforcement, they can pull up those records. So you try to be smart about the decisions you make. Um, what you often see are compliance officers that take a very conservative look on things, um, whereby they will, you know, anytime they're asked for their opinion, they'll always take the most conservative route, which isn't always the best. Um, so you, you really have to be smart about, um, you know, what you're doing. As a mm-hmm. compliance officer, knowing that there are some tremendous downsides, uh, it, there's a new law in 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 New York. Um, there, the New York State Department of Financial Services issued a an, an anti money laundering rule a couple years ago, and requires a certification from a senior own, uh, officer at at the institution. And mm-hmm. you know, this is one of the first times that an individual has to sign their name to a certification, basically saying we're in compliance with the law. And that has raised a lot of concerns about liability. Um, Mm. And so compliance officers, um, some cases uh, have to get separate insurance in the event uh, um, there's litigation. I see. I see. So the question I have to ask you on that front is, is a compliance officer more like a lawyer or more like an accountant? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. I'd say it's more like a lawyer. you know, you're often writing policy. Uh, you have to be very careful what you write and how it could be interpreted. There are some, though, um, in the compliance space that are uh, more like accountants. So you have to think of compliance as uh, not just advisory or policy. There's also an operational aspect to it. So um, I'm not sure if 
listeners know that every transaction at a bank is surveilled mm-hmm. from a money laundering perspective, from a sanctions perspective. And there are individuals that need to look at any type of alert that is raised from this transactional uh, scanning. Um, so you have an operational component to it where somebody's looking at something, does it look suspicious, if it's potentially suspicious, suspicious needs to be escalated. So there are sort of the, kind of the accountant types uh, with okay. the compliance. Okay. Um, okay. They don't typically get paid as much because they're not taking as much. <laughs> <laughs> so just for our, viewers, our listeners to, to have sort of an idea, what's the typical salary range for a compliance officer? How does that, how do, how do you attract talent and what kind of money is Wall Street paying for this? Yeah, yeah. So probably over the last maybe 15 years, salaries maybe have doubled or tripled. So okay. the, accountant, the accountant types, um, they are not making as much. Their, um, their jobs tend to be in lower cost centers, whether okay. in the U.S. or abroad. Um, but um, for the more lawyer types that are in New York or in a, a major money center, um, a senior person can make between, you know, salary-wise, you know, 200000 to half a million. The head of AML or compliance could make upwards of a million. Think about your Citibanks, your JP Morgans. Their head of financial crime compliance easily are making a million in salary, maybe another million in bonus. So, um, there's, you know, there's a lot of risk involved in it. And, right. Uh, right. you know, think about a, a bank that, um, you know, a regulator comes in, finds uh, some issues, Fines are upwards of a billion, two billion dollars. Right. Um, so not Trump change. No, no. I mean Westpac, um, which is one of the largest banks in Australia, was recently in the press. They had twenty-three million violations of law. Each law carrying a potential penalty of seventeen to twenty-one million dollars. Wow. If you do the math, it's like three hundred trillion dollar penalty they that they they could uh, they could have. So. Um, obviously that won't happen, but they'll probably get a two to $3 billion fine. Um, so it's pretty significant. Um, yeah, I, I've written about this though. So, you know, these penalties have to be significant because if they're not, they'll just be, um, part of Sweet doing bumps. business. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. if you're making, I don't know, HSBC, I think at one point had, um, a cross border business with Mexico where they were making in Wells Fargo too, they made over hundred um, rather four billion dollars in business, and so if you know if you're fined five hundred million dollars, and you've got maybe another million for remediation, you know, for consultants you've got to hire new staff, you're still probably making a billion dollars. And so, mm. um, you know, I hate to say it, but that's often factored in into you know whether or not you take on a, a client. It shouldn't be, but right. um, that's why you're seeing the fines get higher and higher. Um, sanctions violations are the are the highest. I think BNP Paribas was fined by um, by the Department of Justice something along the lines of ten billion dollars. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, yeah. But you know, it was egregious. They were um, in policy. They um, I think it was BNP or it could be Credit Agricole, one of the uh, French banks. They had basically codified um, rules to circumvent. Um, sanctions, U.S. sanctions. So basically a wire would come in, they'd strip the wire information that talked about Iran, and then they would send it back out so it, it could circumvent these you know, your sanctions. So they were pretty egregious. I think they even had, it was a special prod, uh, product that they were um, they were offering to some of their clients. It was called like o- OFAC, OFAC free or something. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big business. So, so- so the question is this then, for if, you, if, you, if you look at this process and, and you're a bank that gets sanctioned for this particular uh, type of transaction, shouldn't the regulator be like, okay, well, since you've been in violation of this, you are prohibited from engaging in activities with this particular country, for example, just because we know that you're finding ways, loopholes, because we can detect that you don't have integrity. So mm-hmm. we're not only going to fine you, we're also going to prevent you from doing business on that front for a five-year probation or a 10-year probation. Because if you really want to put the, a check and balance against that, a fine, as you said, if the math is right, you could say, okay, even if you fine me $5 billion and I made seven, I'm still okay. I'm $2 billion ahead, mm-hmm. right? And then there's that question. And there's the other question of, like, are the laws internationally governed? Because 
the rules that may be applied to the United States may not be applicable in Russia or China mm-hmm. or Kuwait. So how do you all figure out what is considered a fine or a, a penalty yep. versus what is just normal business, depending on the culture that you're dealing with? Yeah, yeah. There, there There's a couple questions there. The first one um, is really about, you know, how do you dissuade you know, this from happening again at a particular institution. And you're absolutely right. Regulators, um, you know, can penalize an institution by basically saying no mergers or acquisitions for the next three years. Uh, There's been all sorts of things. Or if you want to divest a particular business, they won't allow it. I think, though, what would really discourage this type of activity is if somebody went to jail. Right. Mm. It would be that simple. You had one banker that went to jail for for one of these violations and and, uh, it would change everything. Now, granted, you've had senior executives um, who have been penalized and that they can't work in the industry anymore. Um, Westpac, again, the CEO is is resigned. The chairman of the board is resigning. Um, But to date, there really hasn't been an individual who. Um, who's, who's going to jail. And um, I think until that happens, you'll see repeat offenders. Mm. Um, the second part of your question was about, you know, U.S. law, international law, you know, regulatory arbitrage, right? Each jurisdiction having somewhat different AML laws and businesses taking advantage of it. And that happens. But um, what we've been seeing over the last maybe five to 10 years is that, uh, many countries' AML regimes are um, pretty robust. There's um, an inter- international organization um, called the Financial Action Task Force, and so every basically every major country has a representative on that on that um, body, uh, except for maybe Vanuatu, I think. <laughs> but they basically set a global standard and. Um, most countries have implemented policies, you know, laws and regulations um, that are pretty robust. So the question now becomes, I think, one of enforcement, where right. the U.S. has been very good at enforcing its AML laws. Other countries haven't. But we're seeing a trend where there's greater enforcement. So the FATF actually comes in and does evaluations periodically of, of, of jurisdictions on how they're you – know, what, what laws and regulations are and are they enforcing it and that has really um, um, pushed countries to start enforcing it so you at the US for many years was the only country that would issue monetary penalties but now you're seeing you know in the EU it's happening a lot ING Bank um, by the Dutch regulator was fined 900 million Commonwealth Bank of Australia 700 million um, so you're starting to see it and, you know, the EU um, was a particular weak area, um, something called the, the Russian laundromat, where, you know, oligarchs and criminals from Russia were laundering the money through Baltic banks, um, you know, and all these banks. These are big-name banks. These weren't just, you know, rinky-dinky banks. And um, what the EU has, has recognized is that, you know, each one of their member states are enforcing their AML regulations differently. And so... There's now a push to have, you know, whether or not this is a good idea, it's up to debate, uh, uh, sort of a central EU regulator for AML matters. Um, so that's been in the press a lot. So, yeah, I mean, countries, I mean, no country wants to be known as the country that has let, you know, child, you know, exploitation to happen through their banks, terrorist financing and things like that. Um mm-hmm. Gray area sanctions because U.S. sanctions are sort of extraterritorial in the sense that the U.S. kind of exerts its its laws and regulations globally. Um, right. So, right. you know, if you're a sovereign country, you don't really want to listen to the U.S. because, you know, you have your own laws and regulations. And if the financial institutions in your country need to follow U.S. laws because, you know what? You know, you got to clear U.S. dollars. You've got, you know, customers in the U.S. and things like that. And so, um, you know, the U.S. kind of pushes its laws. Um, you know, tax tax evasion as well is a big one in the U.S. You know, the U.S. Um, a couple of years ago went out to Switzerland and fined every bank in Switzerland and made them 
um, come to an agreement where there would be transparency into, you know, tax matters. And other countries are jumping on board, too, because there's a lot of revenue that's lost through tax evasion. Um, And so, you know, they see it as a way to, you know, increase revenue. So, uh, yeah, money laundering, anti-terrorist financing, again, tax evasion, stuff like that. It's, It's not going away and enforcement is getting greater and greater. Right. So can I ask you for a quick side favor? Um, sure. If, if you don't mind, just turn off your video because the Wi-Fi connection that's coming through is a little bit distorted. So if sure. we go straight audio, it should hopefully increase the quality of the content that's coming through. All right. So we'll Let edit me... this part out. Don't worry about it. How's that? Much better. Much okay. better. Okay. Okay, perfect. Sorry. So so we're just so, going to carry on. <laughs> so now I, can drink my, now I can drink my coffee. You can drink your coffee in peace. So I was just going to ask, uh, what are the techniques that compliance guys use to manage risk? Um, you know what? It's, it's, it's a lot of it's just common sense. Um, you know, I, I talked earlier about you have bankers who want to onboard customers that have sketchy backgrounds and, um, you know, not being, you know, being independent and not being pressured by the business um, is is really important. And there there are cases and you know where individuals have kind of crumbled under the pressure uh, of of business people. Um, it's a it's just it's a really big concern. But um, you know, you, you gotta you gotta you, if you if you have to think about you're protecting the institution, you are um, protecting the um, financial system by mm-hmm. keeping that this money out of, out of um, you know, uh, the markets. And, um, you know, as an individual, um, you know, you have your own standards of ethics. And um, I think things have changed uh, where, right. where, as in the past, Compliance officers probably weren't, um, you know, top notch. They reported to, I don't know, internal audit or something, uh, or even within the business. But now, AML compliance officers have to be independent. They report to the risk function that reports directly to the CEO, or in many cases, the chief compliance officer reports directly to the CEO. Um, and um, you know, so things have changed uh, over the last. Over probably the last ten years. Okay. Okay. So, uh, did you always uh, work in this field, or did you just transition into this from some other field? Yeah, it's the, I actually was a computer programmer. Believe it or not, I worked right for yeah, a technology company back in the you know dot com boom, and I left um, that boutique firm and moved to one of the big consultancies, and it was right around nine eleven. And um, right after 9-11, and there was a lot of work, um, but the big firms were going in and, um, you know, selling policy, like, we'll help you fix your policies and your procedures. And right. I, hey, I think there's an opportunity here where, you know, technology, particularly data analytics, where we can offer clients things beyond just policy. So I built up a team of, of analysts that would go in to data analysis. You know, we, we source the transaction records. Um, we'd look for potentially specific, suspicious activity. We would um, build little bespoke applications to, you know, screen individuals. And so it was a, it was a great, great time. And um, um, just by virtue of being doing work for clients, I picked up the laws and the regs, and uh, there was a time where I said, you know, do I want to be a partner or not? And, mm-hmm. and there's big investment as a partner in terms of your, your quality of life and things like that. And um, I decided, I think my wife had said to me, because I was on the road a lot, she said, I didn't I didn't marry you not to see you. And, you know, I was <laughs> Oh, you know, I'm. I got to be a partner, and this is the this is what we have to do. These are the sacrifices you have to make, and you know, at some point, I took a step back and I said, you know what, this just isn't worth it. And 
So um, went into industry and uh, worked for a big bank for a number of years in their name of appliance and for another bank today. Oh, that's, well, you know what? It's actually a trend that's um, more pronounced these days than it used to be, that people do want uh, life-work balance, so to speak. They don't want to be putting in 100 hours a week and not seeing their kids or their wife. So totally understandable on that front. So question is this. What do you, what do you teach at the Real World Risk Institute? What, what, what do you uh, bring to the table there? Uh, compliance and fraud risk. So I have um, probably an hour and a half session uh, at every Real World Risk Institute where we talk about compliance risk, fraud risk, um, various topologies. We look at the structure of, of banks and okay. to see are they um, are they vulnerable to systemic risk? Not mm. so much from um, you know like the financial crisis, but more from an operational perspective. What if you know the SWIFT network which connects banks and allows banks to send messages, to transact, do all sorts of things, um, mm. not just banks, but central banks too. What if that were to go down? How would that affect banks? Because mm. you've had hackers actually hack into that network. So we talk about stuff like that. Um, you know, we have some really smart people in the room, the uh, the attendees. Some of them come from banking backgrounds, other come from technology. So it's a really good session um, mm. about about financial services, systemic risk, skin in the game. Um, yeah, so I've been probably probably seven or eight. I've 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 done so far. Awesome. And we just wanted to give a teaser to our listeners who may be considering attending, and they are just curious as to what it is you're offering when your session comes up. So uh, that's awesome. The question I have you for might you: get, You might get some tips on uh, how to launder money. Well, that's the thing. That's exactly where I was naturally <laughs> going next because my question was going to be: I'm sure. Uh, there's there's a threshold of an, a certain amount of money that has to be uh, moved from one spot to the next before it gets flagged because you clearly can't watch everything. You you have to obviously employ some sort of subsampling thing. Yep. So the question we naturally have is, what's that threshold before you become uh, noticeable <laughs> on the radar? Well, here's a here's a real well known one. There's the in the U.S. There's a, a reporting threshold of ten thousand dollars or more. Um, is that, that real? I always thought that was a myth. No, it's real. It's real. It's a uh, it's a currency transaction report that needs to be filed to the IRS. Um, okay. And what you find is that there are individuals or entities that you know make deposits right below that amount, and you know trying to circumvent that reporting threshold. So there's it's called structuring in the industry. Um, okay. They're structuring their deposits to evade that that threshold. So that that's a good one. But you know everybody knows about it. So um, <laughs> if you were to do it now, you're most likely will get caught. Um, mm. But there's all sorts of. I mean, you can you know kind of Google AML and fraud or uh, uh, apologies. You had mm. some really slick ones. Uh, Deutsche Bank was fined a billion dollars because. They were facilitating um, FX payments, um, mm. not through um, not through funds transfer. So, um, you know, you have to you know, those those that, that FX is considered high risk in the AML space. And so there's all sorts of rules monitoring transactions. But what Deutsche Bank was doing was called mirror trading. Is they were using securities to move and the sale of securities to move funds across border. And Deutsche Bank didn't have any surveillance of this. It's, you know, billions of dollars moved from Russia to London and then to all sorts of offshore centers from there. Um, mm. Yeah, so there's, you know, the, the money launders are, are, are pretty slick. A lot mm. of large criminal cartels um, have com- former compliance officers and lawyers on their payroll. Of course. There's ways to evade uh, surveillance. So, so here's a question for you. Uh, uh, how does when when the United States says, okay, we're freezing all assets of, you know, President Maduro and his <laughs> uh, his buddies or, or of uh, uh, you know these particular people in Russia or Iran, 
when they say they're freezing assets, what does that actually mean? What is the mechanics of it? Everybody hears that they think, oh, maybe they just can't access those accounts. But where's all that money or where all that stuff? Where does it go? How long did they hold it for? Is there a way for the other people to get it back if they can prove that they were, you know, incorrectly identified as money launderers or in this case, you know, uh, funds of terrorists? All that stuff. How do, yeah. they, how do they actually go about the mechanics of doing that? What, what, what actually happens? Well, each bank, so we would get, you know, I don't know, some sort of letter from, um, you know, the various uh, regulator or enforcement agency. And essentially what banks have is they have blocked accounts. They are, are the, the funds are, they're, they're either, there's either an operational control that's put in around the account such that, you know, money can't come in or go out. Um, in some cases, the funds are moved from one account to another account. Um, and those accounts have, have um, certain controls around them. It doesn't allow the funds to transfer in and out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to be, you don't want your, you know, the U.S. government to say, um, to actually freeze your accounts because they send it to every financial institution and every mm-hmm. financial institution will freeze those accounts and make sure and, and it's not just you know your dda accounts you know you check your savings mm-hmm. if you have um you know a securities account um mm-hmm. if you have trust account you have um you know some some funds in custody for example you know that's all gonna be frozen and it's not gonna be able to move in and out and you know it that those funds, the you know, banks aren't happy about this because it's costly to kind of keep these controls in place. But sometimes those funds stay there for years and years um, until you know it's resolved in the courts or something like that. So it happens. It's that it's it's, it's uh, you don't want to be on the office of foreign asset control back. They are the ones who issue all the sanctions. Um, uh, terrorist watch lists and things like that mm. you don't want to you don't want to be on one of those lists no not at all so the question <laughs> is what if you accidentally end up on one of those how would a person ever go back to, to go through the process of trying to uh, clear their name that seems like a painful legal turmoil process that would last years is that yeah right? yeah i mean well your name won't go on the list uh, unless there's a good reason the, the issue is that there are names of individuals on the list that, you know, have fairly common names. Right. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you have people that, um, you know, they try to, I don't know, go on vacation and leave the country and they're on these, these lists and their names are screened and, you know, they're hassled. Eventually they're allowed to go once sort of the false positive, so to speak, is, is cleared. But um, it, it can it ruins people's lives. Um, of course. I mean, you try to open up a bank account, <laughs> your name's on one of these lists. You're not you getting be, anywhere. <laughs> no, no, it's terrible. It's terrible, um, and it's unfortunate. But um, you know, it happens. It happens. So I given name off, uh, you can't. It's because you know if the name is on this watch list, good reason. Mm. Your name happens to be similar that name mm-hmm. every time there's a, a you know name gets screened you're going to come up as a match mm-hmm. and you know unless that name's removed from the list which likely it won't be you're just mm-hmm. going to have to deal with it unfortunately i mean I, i'd imagine the first thing you could do is just go get legally change your name <laughs> and in that process hopefully they, they thoroughly inspect and see that you're not the guy they think you are and hopefully yeah doesn't get uh, screened but I'm exactly. sure somebody's tried something of the sort. Exactly. <laughs> so, so the next question I have for you is, given what you've just stated, then I imagine cryptocurrencies and all the variations of that must be pretty big in your world, because if you can't legitimately launder money, if there's such a way to put that as an exomoronic term, you must be able to do so if you could find the right cryptocurrency to buy and sell. No? Yeah, yeah. The challenge with cryptocurrency as a launderer is now anyway, maybe not four or five years ago, is you need an on-ramp and an off-ramp, right? You have to take your fiat and you have to buy it. That fiat's coming from a financial institution, (laughs) most likely. And if you want to cash out, again, it needs to go to a financial institution. So um, it's difficult. I mean, money, it can happen. It happens. But if 
if you're a big criminal, if you're a, if you're a crime syndicate, you're not move, you're not you're using maybe crypto as part of your money laundering scheme, but you much rather get it through the traditional financial system. Now, I think cryptocurrency as as a potential new asset class that really gains footing in the capital markets. Um, um, there needs to be regulation um, put around it. There needs to be controls like a bank um, around, um, you know, who's accessing the, the crypto. Um, are they on one of these watch lists? You know, all of the things that you get in a bank, when you have a wallet, those types of controls need to be put in place. Um, are they not put in place already or they're just thinking about putting them in place? Like, what's the state of that? Well, it depends, right? So there's custodized wallets. So, like, for example, if you go to a crypto exchange um, and you have your wallet, you transfer, say, 10 Bitcoin from your wallet to a Coinbase, for example. Um, Coinbase basically puts that crypto into um, a Coinbase wallet and basically just has a registry that says, you know, you own that, that crypto. Um, and in order to get onto that exchange, they have to do all sorts of screening and stuff like that. Um, but your own wallet, you know, somebody can drop Bitcoin in your wallet if they just have uh, your address. You won't even know who it came from. Right. Um, so there needs to be a way that... that um, there's more transparency into whose wallets these are and the money transfers. There needs mm. to be anonymity removed. And I know that a lot of crypto purists don't want to hear this, but mm. until there is regulations, until there's controls put in place, you know, crypto is going to be kind of a, you know, a, you know, second tier asset. Um, right. But if you think about you know, what I said earlier about surveillance, about all the transactions that banks surveil, um, you know, regulators or just governments, they love the idea. They love, they don't like the anonymity. They like the idea that there's an immutable ledger in every transaction is reported. They want to certain. They, so I think what's going to happen is there will become regulation. There will be transactions that happen over you know, ledgers, blockchain ledgers, you know, shared ledgers. Um, and um, I think of all this stuff is uh, you have, uh, for example, um, a company like this, uh, like BlackRock, right? They have so much money or so many, so much quote unquote assets under control. I think last time um, somebody checked, and then this is straight from Paul, our friend, he was saying like a, mm -hmm. something like around half a trillion dollars under asset management. They could, if, if you're trying to regulate somebody like that, and anything that they do can essentially move the markets uh, uh, just on their end, how do we make sure that the, the size of the growth of the companies that are now participating in the market are properly regulated by the regulators? Because you guys, I mean, from the compliance side on your end is one thing, but like the actual government's controls over these particular uh, entities eventually it's going to cross a threshold where they just simply won't be able to manage it because they will need such a large team just to even investigate it. So how are we, like, have we made it too big to fail? Because the regulations from what we can see here is that they're so burdensome that entry into the market is almost locked out and whatever is already in the market is too big to fail. So it's kind of like a double whammy, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you have these large institutions that have, you know, trillions of dollars of assets under management um you know i i kind of subscribe to this you know nasim taleb's idea of you know you've got to break these institutions up into smaller ones because you have consolidation risk you've got all sorts of risk um and you know you, you get centralized like this now there are small you know medium-sized market makers broker dealers but yeah i mean some of these institutions are just massive and they've gotten, you know, ironically larger since the financial crisis, which is sort right. of intuitive. You would have thought that, you know, um, governments would have learned that you know, the size of an institution 
um, you know, really put, you know, you know, creates this systemic risk. Um, and believe it or not, I've been on a couple of panels in DC with, um, treasury and large financial institutions and they're certainly aware of this risk mm. um, the question is how do you address it and you know they tried to you know there's liquidity management there's reserves there's you know resolution planning you know like if a bank goes under you know how are the assets distributed but you know I think the real answer is you got to break these institutions up into small. Um, and until you do that, you know, that risk is going to be there. And it's, I think, you know, Paul in particular, um, you know, he's, he comes from a financial services background. He's certainly aware of it. And um, that's why you have to buy some uh, deep out of the money puts. <laughs> when, the, when, well, when, when the system crashes. Well, it's it's kind of funny because if you watch the movie The Big Short, um, even when you buy the out of the money puts, sometimes they may not be in a position to pay out of them, right? If yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. So the question I have for you on this front is like, um, what? How does this work towards the rest of the world where people aren't in the banking system? There's a large chunk of the people who don't have access to financial institutions. How are they being addressed in the sense like you could probably if I was setting up an operation, I would say, okay, let's just go figure out a way to do this where we don't have to. If they can figure out how to, uh, um, to, to live without really being involved in the banks, maybe we can sort of replicate a similar system where we trade different things that actually equate to money without actually having to carry money. Yeah, there, there's costs and benefits to everything, but I'm sure there's if you're, if you're going to get really creative and you're a cartel in Mexico and you need to move around billions of dollars and you realize that the risk you're taking by making any kind of uh, digital transaction because any like you said any transaction going through a bank is going to be recorded i would probably look into some r&d you know set up a, a lab in silicon valley somewhere and say let's just figure out a way to uh, transfer wealth um without actually being involved in the, in the network of of the surveillance that's already available so maybe move diamonds maybe move art maybe move cars but you know those are small things is there another venue that you guys are looking at to say hey you know we don't want to keep um our eye off this ball just because we're so heavily invested in figuring it out on the digital side. What's what's happening in the real world side? What if they're moving assets that are like a little harder to trace? Yeah, I mean, trade finance is a big one, right? Where, you know, there's forged invoices and shipping records where, you know, um, money is laundered, you know, incredible amounts of money is laundered. Where in some cases, if you open up the shipping containers, there's nothing in it. Like, right. what happened? Or, you know, they ship pencils and they say it's, you know, cars. And, you right. know, there's all uh, trade finance is huge, huge from a money laundering perspective. You mentioned a few other ones. I mean, artwork, there's all sorts of assets that can be used to launder money. Right. Um, um, I think from an unbanked perspective, where there's large numbers of, you know, people that can't get bank accounts. Um, for one reason or another, they may be in remote locations. Uh, they may not have the proper location. I don't know. I think crypto though plays a really important role there. Um, something that uh, that I've been thinking about that um, Jeff Ali guys know. We've been thinking about. We've actually um, drafted um, potential crypto wallet that could solve maybe some of these issues where, you know, we could, we could using crypto, using a crypto wallet, we can, we could, um, we could reach this unbanked population, but at the same time, manage the risks associated with anonymity and, and things like that. So we, we, we actually submitted a patent for a, a special wallet um, about two or three months ago thinking about you know, kind of how do we monetize it now can we build it um but um the wallet it would be decentralized it would the wallet would do all your identification and verification and even screening for that matter and anyone using this wallet in the network would be known and trusted and so you could you could transact across um 
geographies. You could, um, you know, you would keep the criminal element out of it because the wallet would be uh, smart. You have the ID and V. You have to screen. Um, and so, yeah, it's something um, we've thought about. Um, and you know, banks—they really want to tap into this population. Again, though, it's difficult. Um, you know, think about it. It's high volume, low margin. So you have to—you know—how do you reach them? You can't open a branch unless you have got a lot of these retail out there. Um, um, so you know, banks are trying to get there, but I think really the way to tap that market is is through crypto. Um, so, so the argument I'd, I'd present to you on this front is like I, I see the legitimate case that you're making for for people who may not have access to the financial uh, institutions that the rest of us take for granted. But there's also the other side of the equation of like people in Venezuela or North Korea or um, you know Iran or Russia, they just want to not be associated with the state's malfeasance of their economy, and they want to try to attempt to salvage some of their life savings. And if you make that um, uh, required uh, identity, it may give the state some le- uh, leverage to pressure those people to giving up their assets, right? So how do you protect their needs? And I'm not saying this is what your product is trying to address. I'm saying how do you, as a, as a person who's in the uh, in the space of regulations and, and, and keeping track of how these things, how do you see that problem? Or what's your take on that for, on that front? Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult. It's I, I mean, I think the answer there is, and it's probably not the answer you want to hear is, but that's why, you know, high net worth individuals, that's why entities move their funds to the U.S. So that it's out of reach of their local, you know, country's regime, whether it be, you know, Venezuela or what have you. Um, you know, states are going to be states. And, um, you know, there's always that risk. And there's a flight to... Of, of assets to lower risk jurisdictions, right? Um, it used to be a flight to, um, you know, offshore money centers where there was anonymity, but that's all been lost. You know, every financial, I mean, you can't go to Cayman anymore. They've got fantastic AML regulations. You know, you can't go even like the Cook Islands now, you know, a place where people used to park, you know, their, their, their assets to evade, you know, taxation that's been opened up so you can't get around taxation the, the if you if you really are concerned about your your assets you move it to a, a low risk area you buy real estate in the u.s and you park your money there i mean that's what the chinese do that's what the russians do you wonder why you know you look at real estate for example in new york san francisco vancouver you know money centers you know you wonder like how they how can they continue to build all this living space that had you know two bedroom apartments that are going for five six million dollars and there's no one buildings (laughs) new york city is the depository trust clearinghouse for real estate it's Mm -hmm. you know you park your money in a in a condo and you'll leave it there and it's safe you know relatively safe you know the u.s can always go under or you know you've got some risk but um you know uh, crypto is a, a potential too um right. and and i like i like bitcoin i like things like that but um you know if you're you got a hundred billion dollars, or even if you got a billion dollars, five hundred million dollars. You know, it's I. I, still, I mean, the, the the crypto market, Bitcoin, is just is it's so unstable, pricing perspective. You know, and if if governments, you know, turn negative on crypto, you know, what is that asset class worth? What happens? So, I'm sure these these individuals are parking some. Some funds in in crypto. Um, I think it's you know good to have at least some exposure to it. But um, if you if you got billions of dollars, millions of dollars, you know it's, it's not it's not all in crypto. Um, what does that mean to the average individual in these countries? Um, you know, have cousins abroad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to say. All right, 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 right. 
All right. So what happened to the uh, Panama Papers? That that is an interesting case. That um, so Panama was once a um, place where you could, as a wealthy individual, evade taxes by parking your assets in you know in Panama. So basically, law firms or you know, certain brokers would set up shell companies. Um, they would be the nominee on the shell company, and you would move your your assets into that that shell company, and, and banks would do business with the shell company. So you decoupled you from from your assets in a way. Um, but there was a, a major hack um, at one of the law firms. I forget the name of it, and uh, all the customer records were shared with with journalists all around the world, and they were all published. And it was an embarrassment. There was there was all sorts of very um, I think celebrities, there was politicians who were trying to evade taxes and parking their money there. Um, and you know, on the on the heels of that, there was a law passed in the U.S. called um, um, the Customer Due, Due, Due Diligence Rule where now beneficial ownership is it required. It used to be, you know, if you went to a bank, you didn't have to disclose, and you, you know, you owned a company, you didn't have to disclose who was the owner of the company. Now, because of that rule, you have to. Um, so this idea of shell companies, anonymity behind ownership, that's all going away. I mean, think about bearer shares. There's no even such thing as bearer shares. Bearer shares are bearer in name only. They've all been dematerialized. Major custodians manage the registries. And so you may have a bearer share, but the you know, Euroclear knows who's the owner of that share and if it ever and you know, they've got the physical certificate um, in a in a file cabinet and if you wanna change ownership, you you know, you change the registry. So anything there has moved, you know, it's, it's so, it's much harder to evade taxes today. You know, you're much better off just paying your taxes. <laughs> it's just a matter of time before you will be found out. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so the question is this then now. Um, so as I try to look at the, the problems of, of a compliance officer, I would imagine this is the order against which you're working, which is state-sponsored activities. So let's say the Russians uh, or the Chinese or whatever are trying to hide particular assets uh, because they're sanctioned. Two would be um, uh, criminal cartels. Three would be the, the, the terrorist networks. And four would just be tax evaders. Is that sort of the right order or do I have it backwards? No, I mean, that, that you know, depends on who you talk to. I mean, Terrorist financing um, is definitely high on the list. Um, for in, in others cases, it's sanctions. Um, you may ask, you know, the IRS would say it's tax evasion, but you know they're all in the same class. It's hard to give them an order of precedence. Um, but um, um, you know, certainly what you said makes sense. Mm. What I would imagine on that front is the terrorists should be number one on the list because of what they finance. Because you look at it, I, I can look at it this way, right? There's two ways to look at that problem. The problem one is where's the most amount of money being funneled? Obviously, that could be the state-sponsored activities. Yep. But there's also where's the most harm being done, which would be the terrorist activities and the drugs. So you kind of have to balance which priorities you want to put uh, in front of the other. And I guess uh, there's no real clear answer depending on who you're asking, like you said, right? Yeah, I mean, if you go to a bank, they'd say all of those things are equally important. Um, your each regulator, law enforcement would say, you know, you you, you gotta you gotta surveil for this stuff, and it's right. different. I mean, terrorist financing is low dollar. It's in in many cases. Think about terrorist financing. Financing it goes from legitimate organizations to illegitimate. You have money that's maybe given by you or me to a charity, unbeknownst to us, it could be you know. Uh, nefarious charity. You have good money that goes bad, whereas money loaner is the opposite. You have bad money that goes good. So, right. from a from a surveillance perspective, there's totally different topologies how they're surveilled. Um, and then sanctions is really, um, you know, every transaction sanctions is there's there's zero tolerance for error from a sanctions perspective. So, if you as a bank um, allow a payment to go out or come in, 
that is from a sanctioned individual or sanctioned entity, you are now liable. Um, mm. You know, whereas if if I onboard, you know, uh, a politically exposed person who um, who happened to launder money, you know. Um, as long as you identify the activity, you file the suspicious activity report with your, you know, your, your regulator and you, you block the account, you're fine. Mm-hmm. You know, you did everything you could. With, with sanctions, there's zero tolerance for error. Mm-hmm. You subject to a $250,000, I think, penalty for each payment you process, um, and if you if if, if if it shows that you just your control structure at your institution is just um, is just failing, mm-hmm. uh, then you can get those. Not only are you paying per incident, but you would also get a, a monetary penalty and an enforcement action. You know, again, in the billions of dollars. Right, 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 right. So it's interesting because I, I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a, a, a CA. He's a forensic accountant, and what he was talking about is. The vast majority of the companies that he is charged to audit because of a sale or a, whatever the case may be, um, he constantly brings up control structures. And so I, I was kind of curious as to what he meant by that. But I would imagine that's not really a problem in a bank considering that's all they do is manage the inflow and outflow of, of, of money. So is it, is, it, is it foolish to assume they're good at this or is it just? No, nah, yeah. <laughs> banks, are very, the, hey, banks are very good. At PNL and reconcil and reconciliations of PNL, right? Mm-hmm. Aside from that, you know, every other control doesn't really matter. And banks have been forced, kicking and screaming, to put in robust controls around AML. I mean, think about you think about some of the best customers. They were money launderers. They would right. pay the highest fees. Just they to would, get their piece. <laughs> yeah, they would take you out to dinner. They would, you know, they would treat you. They'd invite you as a private banker to their kid's wedding, and they'd fly you out there. I mean, they were the best, <laughs> best customers from from that from a business perspective. And so, think about you know trying to put controls in here that now would stop that business. And so you had a lot of you had a lot of difficulty, and you got to think about it. Compliance is a cost center. Clients bring in revenue to the bank, and so you do, you you know do you want to spend three hundred million dollars a year on your compliance function? Not really. And as a compliance officer, you know it's it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell. You almost become a victim of your own success. Think about it like this: say you have a solid anti-money laundering, it's fantastic. You haven't gotten any enforcement. Well, every year that goes by, you know, your budget gets cut because you're right. doing so well. You really need you're doing great. <laughs> Not on top of the fact is all these other banks are getting in trouble. And mm. say you're a bank and you have an enforcement action. Now there's a blank check. Mm. There's a tremendous investment into your control structure. Um, right. of dollars are getting pumped into there because you know they want to get the consent order lifted. So if you're a, if you're an institution that's doing everything right or mm-hmm. as a compliance function, your your budget's getting cut. Everybody else is um, control structures looking better. So now when the regulators come in, they say, "What? You know, you know, Citibank has such great controls. Why are your controls very manual? <laughs> you know, so right. you you sort of you know, and it's a hard sell. It's like you go to management and you say, hey, listen, we're keeping this institution reputation safe and sound. We're we're avoiding enforcement actions and monetary penalties. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is getting monetary penalties. But, you know, it's 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 you're, you're not going to get more funding. For it. Right, it's, right. It's, it's, it's it's as a compliance officer. And I hate to say this, I'm sure there, there's compliance functions that say, you know what, we're better off getting an enforcement action because once we do, at least I can hire people, I mm. can get the funding I need for the right technologies. Mm. So it's unfortunate. No, it's it sounds to me like it's, it's the old saying, right? You you don't get paid for prevention; you only get paid for cure after the fact. Exactly. Right? So it seems like well, the incentive is misaligned here. 
Well, you know what? It, but even from a fraud perspective, there's some incentive, right? So each institution has to have fraud loss provisions. There's a right. hundred million dollars and only 20 million. There was only 20 million in fraud. Mm-hmm. Well, now that institution can lower its fraud provision. So there is almost an incentive, at least from a fraud perspective, to invest in fraud control. For money laundering control, it's different. You know, people kind of conflate fraud and money laundering really different animals. You know, fraud is very binary. It's, it is or it isn't. Fraud. Money laundering is a lot of gray area. And so, um, you know, anti-money laundering programs aren't the most well-funded, at least in the past they were. Um, but because of the enforcement actions, um, um, a lot of institutions had to improve the program. Right, 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 right. So the question is this. So what are the top financial institutions that are stellar when it comes to their record on enforcing all these uh, laws to prevent these particular violations of basically, for lack of a better term, uh, generally agreed upon ethics of how people should be conducting business? So which banks are doing a great job and which ones need to improve their game? They've all failed miserably. (laughs) (laughs) Every single one of them. There was a time when it was thought that Deutsche Bank had best anti-money loaner program. <laughs> but they really didn't. They hit it well, and um, they have one of the worst <laughs> programs. They have, arguably, they'd say they've, it's gotten better because of all the enforcement action. But every single bank, including the Vatican, the Vatican Bank, wow. had breakdowns. Um, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable unbelievable how many financial institutions, all the big names, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Citibank, JP, JP Morgan, the, you know, this whole, um, what was his name? Uh, Madoff. They right. had a counter. <laughs> wow. You know, they got in a lot of trouble for that. Um, so every single one of them. Um, hopefully, though, that um, they won't have any new enforcement in the future right so here's a question for you so what where does a ponzi scheme fall in line is it laundering is it fraud is it it's a variation because it's it looks legit for a number of years until you unravel it right yeah yeah ponzi scheme um is is you know it's certainly fraud it's got a money laundering component to it um and the mother of all things all wrapped in one no it is. It is. It's. It's got. It's. It's pretty bad. But you know, from a surveillance perspective, you can start picking up on these. Things. And for institutions that hold accounts for Ponzi schemes, you know, there was some failure at that institution. Um, either their systems didn't detect it, or they were detected, but com- and compliance raised it, but they were ignored. And what happened? Right. There's right. a lot of times where compliance officers raise concerns to the businesses and they're they're ignored. Now, you know, hopefully that's changing now because of enforcement actions and things like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, Ponzi schemes are, are, are pretty nasty. But again, they can it can be detected. It can, you believe it or not, you have a good automated surveillance system and good analysts that are reviewing alerts that come out of that system, you find, you find it. You can detect it. Well, right, fair enough. Well, we, we appreciate your time. I know you were limited to, to the one hour for us. There's Is there anything else you want to touch on? I know you were pressed for time. We're happy to accommodate if you could stay longer, but uh, we also want to respect your wishes. So is there anything else you want to go over or we're good? I, there's so much I want to talk to you about. I want to talk. I want to talk about coffee. I want to talk about coffee because oh, yes, you know, everybody has a problem. With coffee? With coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I don't have a problem with coffee. I love. <laughs> I'm drinking coffee right now. Believe it or not. Good. What I don't like about coffee, and I don't. What I don't like about alcohol is mm. when I feel as though it's controlling me. So when I have to have that cup of coffee every day or I'm feeling anxious and I need a drink, um, right. that's what I say, you know what, I've got to, I've got to cut, cut back on this. And, you know, I go cold turkey. It's not mm-hmm. easy. Um, right. But, you know, I think that's, that's, 
that's my issue. Um, I, but I do love coffee. I love it black. And uh, but I like messing around with uh, with Trish and, and, and the guys. So uh, you'll see me keep tweeting about how much I, I don't like it. But, you know, <laughs> I like I like I like my coffee with a nice with some Sambuca. Anna's yeah. that. Fair enough. No, see, you know what? I always remember the, the, the line from Christopher Hitchens um, where he said that use the drink, but don't let the drink use you, right? Exactly. So so that seems like we're in compliance, to, to borrow a phrase from your industry, uh, with regards <laughs> to that. Because me and, me and Amber literally have cups of coffee here with us as we were uh, engaging in this conversation with you. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. We appreciate uh, your insights into the fantastic world of uh, financial compliance because, like I said, uh, all manner of criminal activity has to have a payoff, and that payoff mm-hmm. has to go through an institution, which means you're one of the gatekeepers. So exactly. thank you for lending us into the process. And thanks for having me. And you know what? I'd be happy to come on again to talk more about it or, for that matter, pretty much anything. Um, and- um, yeah, I, we're, we're, the door is always open to you. Anytime you want to come back, any <laughs> topics you want to go over, we're happy to have you. Yes, and thank you guys. You have a fantastic podcast. Uh, I've listened to it before, and uh, it's really quite an honor to, to uh, uh, have been on it today. So thanks again. Cheers. Have a great day. Have a good you one. Too. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any conversation worthy of having will inherently be a risky one. Thank you for listening. Stay anti-fragile and carry on the ancient tradition and your own unique way of saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Ember Sadat and Ace Deliri signing off, wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.